Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport for WFHB I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. The Bloomington Common Council is in the process of reviewing and amending the city's draft transportation plan. The plan proposes more than 30 transportation-related projects, including creating a high-priority bike network. More than 60 new streets are also proposed. At last week's council meeting, Planning Services Manager Beth Rosenberger said not all those new street connections will materialize because they need funding and political interest. But Rosenbarger said they're important for long-term planning. We need future street connections to be in our adopted plan in order to require developers build those when they are doing projects of a certain scale. That's generally a rezone or a planned unit development or a subdivision. One project Rosenbarger highlighted is the proposed redesign of Kirkwood Avenue. The goal is to make the section between Walnut Street and Indiana Avenue a shared street. That means uh, it's a seamless transition from the sidewalk to the street level where on most of the time vehicles are operating in the street space and pedestrians on the sidewalk space but it creates easier access and easier transitions for public events uh, and for more opportunities potentially for outdoor seating with restaurants and things along those lines. Shared streets are more inclusive, especially during events, and they can reduce the burden of street closures on public safety staff. The city included public health as one focal point of its transportation plan. Rosenbarger said the plan supports designing streets around physical activity and lays a framework for adding new sidewalks. We know um, that increased physical activity is good for us and that transit use, walking, bicycling, access to trails, and using those as transportation can help improve overall public health throughout the community. But Indiana University student Bella Harrison has concerns about the safety of walking and biking in inclement weather. Speaking during public comment, she told the council, if public health is a transportation priority, the city will need to keep streets, sidewalks, and trails passable. He also expressed concern about those with physical limitations. Because in times like these, when it's snowy and icy out, I find that the sidewalks and the paths that we're supposed to be walking on are almost impossible to get from point A to point B without tripping and falling. It's really hard to get around in the cold already because of the weather, but you add into that different patches of ice, black ice in particular when it gets a little dark, that's just asking people to hurt themselves. The council will continue to review the draft transportation plan through February. Council members hope to have a final version ready for adoption on February 27th. 
Council member Steve Volan and city attorney Dan Sherman said the public can view the plan at the city's website. So people who want to see the plan and the amendments online can visit bloomington.in.gov slash council. Yes, and then go to the box that says transportation plan. And click on that box. Yeah. Members of the public are allowed to propose changes to the plan. But as council member Isabel Piedmont-Smith explained, all amendments must be sponsored by a city council member. So if any member of the public feels like there's something in the plan that needs to be amended, please reach out to um, either council at bloomington.in.gov or a specific council member. Any amendments to the transportation plan must be filed before February 13th. This week marks the five-year anniversary of an environmental disaster that still resonates to this day. On January 2, 2014, a stormwater pipe beneath a coal ash storage pond collapsed at Duke Energy Facility in Eden, North Carolina. When the pipe collapsed, the pond dumped 39,000 tons of coal ash and about 25 million gallons of ash impoundment water into the Dan River. The coal ash material moved downriver and settled out in varying amounts for about 80 miles, reaching the Kerr Reservoir in Virginia. The cleanup costing millions has prompted Duke Energy to close 59 coal ash ponds at 21 plants. According to a press release, preparations for closure are already underway. By early 2019, Duke plans to halt the flow of coal ash and wastewater to nearly all ponds. To accomplish this, the company constructed dry bottom ash handling systems and new lined retention basins at a number of Duke coal plants. Ash has also been excavated from seven other ponds, including the Cayuga Generating Station at Cayuga, Indiana, the Gibson Generation Station at Owensville, Indiana, and the Gallagher Generating Station at New Albany, Indiana. This represents a significant advance in protecting not only rivers, but also groundwater. Although the recent government shutdown lasted only 35 days, naturalists predict it could take Joshua Tree National Park some 300 years to recover. During the shutdown, many national parks were left open with very limited staff to care for park facilities, manage wilderness trails, and supervise guests. Joshua Tree National Park in the Mojave Desert in Southern California suffered extensive vandalism during the shutdown. Joshua trees, for which the park is named, live an average of 150 years. At least one Joshua tree is thought to have lived as many as a thousand years. Joshua trees aren't actually trees, but members of the Yucca family. Their ages are hard to determine precisely because they have no rings. Some people took advantage of the shutdown to disobey, disobey Joshua Tree National Park rules. They drove off-road vehicles in sensitive areas, camp where camping is illegal, left trash, and even chopped down some of the Joshua trees. Even before the vandalism, Joshua tree forests were disappearing. They are being considered for inclusion on the endangered species list. This is because of weather in Colorado River Basin, which has experienced a 14-year drought. While older Joshua trees with deep roots can survive these conditions, seedlings cannot. The EPA has appointed Brant Ulsh to head the agency's Radiation Advisory Committee. Ulsh is a health physicist who claims that relaxing regulations on low-level radiation exposure is acceptable.
Currently, the EPA has a no-tolerance policy on low doses of radiation exposure. Ulsh, known as a radiation skeptic, has led the attack on the well-established position that exposure to any amount of ionizing radiation significantly increases the risk of developing cancer. In a paper last year, Ulsh and a colleague argued that the zero-tolerance policy was based on outdated science and forced the, quote, unnecessary burdens of costly cleanup, unquote, on facilities like nuclear power plants that work with radiation. Last year, after reviewing 29 studies on cancer rates in people exposed to low-level radiation, the National Council on Radiation Protection and Measurements reaffirmed that no threshold of radiation is risk-free. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Jan Walker, our Eco Report producer, recently discovered Tending the Garden, a WFHB series originally broadcast in the 90s. Jan enjoyed it so much she decided to bring it back. Now we present to you an episode of Tending the Garden, produced by the late Cheryl Coverdale. Hi ho, Ruta Bega here. Got a couple of different stories. I just like this one. It's about, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. You're going to have to guess through the story and see if you've figured it out kind of as it goes. But this is a Native American story. Uh, It's from the Cherokee Nation. After all the plants were created, they were told to stay awake for seven days and nights to keep watch. They all made it through the first night. But as the nights progressed, more and more fell asleep. Until on the last night... There were only a few plants, only a few trees, that had been able to stay awake. Because each had made it through the seven nights, they were honored by remaining green all year long. Of course, when we're talking about cedar trees, spruce, pine, holly, laurel, and fir trees, uh, it's our evergreens. And they've gained the honor of being an evergreen by being able to stay awake through the winter. Uh, and and uh, they've related it to that they were given the task to see if they were sturdy enough to uh, get the job uh, by staying awake for seven days and seven nights. Uh, I think it's kind of sweet. Another one is about the cedar tree. Cedars are easy to identify this time of year because they are one of the few trees that do keep their greenery on. This story's from China. The wife of a faithful subject was the focus of attention for an evil ruler, and he threw her husband into jail on false charges, claiming the subject's wife for himself. The husband soon died of grief, and upon hearing of his death, the wife killed herself by jumping from a cliff. The ruler spitefully ordered that they not be buried together, but even in death could not separate the couple, for from their graves grew the first cedar trees. Their branches and roots grew intertwined so that even today, the people of China call them the trees of the faithful loves. 
One last uh, parable from the Greek. It's a Greek myth. Cybele loved a shepherd who had a roving eye. She could not bear his other flirtations any longer, so she changed him into a pine tree. She spent many hours under his branches, saddened by what he had forced her to do. Zeus felt pity for Cybele's grief. To help her beloved new tree last through all the seasons, he commanded that the needles on the pine tree be evergreen. Just some sweet stories give you a different interpretation of the trees that have the hardiness to stay green throughout the winter. And I say, thank goodness for that. Sometimes I just really need to see some green foliage. And they're the only thing that really gives that to us through this winter season. This is Rutabaga, hoeing on down the row. WFHB's Norm Holy interviews Eileen Kladivko, Purdue professor of agronomy, about the role of cover crops in soil conservation. This is Norm Holy for WFHB. Today I am interviewing a Purdue professor, Professor Eileen Kladivko. She is in the agronomy department an expert on several aspects of of interest to Indiana farmers and the one thing I'd like to have her start with would be we've covered cover crops a little bit just in stories before and so I understand that there's the growing use of cover crops in Indiana. Can you tell us about that and then move on to what are the advantages of doing the cover crop? Certainly I'd be happy to. Cover crops have definitely increased in their uh, usage in Indiana. Indiana is actually one of the leaders in the country in adoption of cover crops on farms. As you all know, Indiana grows a lot of corn and soybeans and have an opportunity after the corn and soybeans have been harvested to get cover crops established and make better use of some of the time that we have available during the year rather than just four or five months when we're growing summer annual crops. We have about 10% of our corn and soybean acres in Indiana right now that are using cover crops, which actually makes it the third most prevalent type of crop in Indiana after corn and soybeans. Uh, We have more cover crop ground than we have cash crop wheat ground. That's a good thing. Cover crops have many potential benefits for the soil and for the environment and water qualities. Why would somebody want to use cover crops? Well, they can improve soil health. There's a lot more interest in the recent times in the biology of the soils, things like earthworms, but also much smaller organisms like protozoa and fungi and bacteria. And by having something growing for a longer period of time during the year, you're feeding the soil organisms. If you have cover crops growing, you're protecting the surface from erosion. The roots exude carbon compounds, which feed the organisms. Those organisms then help stabilize the soil. They build clusters of soil and help increase organic matter, those particles uh, get glued together in a way that stabilizes them against destructive forces from erosion. Um, That helps improve water infiltration into the soil, which then means you get less runoff off the surface of the soil, and so that's also going to help protect against erosion. We also look at cover crops to scavenge excess nutrients, and by excess nutrients, I don't mean that somebody has put on too much fertilizer. I mean that the particular plant growing there 
has not utilized everything that might be available. It might be fertilizer that's left from this year that the cash crop didn't take up. It might be nutrients that are being released naturally over time from soil organic matter. That happens all the time. So having something living and growing to take up those nutrients and scavenge those nutrients keeps some of them out of our water bodies. And in particular, in a lot of Indiana, at least on our flatter, naturally poorly drained soils, we have a lot of uh, drainage tile. That's basically draining away the high water table that we have in the spring. And if we have nutrients in that water, then it goes out the drain tiles into surface ditches and streams. By having a cover crop, we reduce the amount of those nutrients that's in that water and that drains away. Basically, those nutrients stay in the soil bank account then, available at some later time for the the farmers to, to utilize. may not be that particular year, but it'll be helping to build up soil organic matter. I, I'm curious about comparing a field that has not had cover crops versus one that has had cover crops for, let's say, several years. What's the difference in organic matter in the soil? So soil organic matter is very slow to increase, and so that's one of our challenges is that you won't generally see a measurable increase in soil organic matter with a couple of years. Soil organic matter changes over the course more like a decade, and it's quite variable in a field. That's why people are trying to look at other indicators that can give us a sense that that organic matter is actually increasing, even though the measurement that we make itself is not increasing. That's very frustrating for people, but that's just the way it is. Soil organic matter can increase about 1%, meaning going from 3% organic matter to 4% organic matter, for example, over the course of a decade. That would be a very good increase in soil organic matter. But because of the variability of the measurements, you can't actually measure or detect that within two or three years, usually. How does a cover crop work in terms of years when we have a drought in Indiana? Does that protect the soil, retain water better, or is there no difference? Yes, as, as always, that depends. But if, um, if you have a good cover crop and you have a lot of top growth in the spring, for example, if you have a cereal rye cover crop and there's a lot of above-ground biomass, that ends up becoming a mulch. So just like in a garden, if if you, uh, first of all, when the rains do come, you get more of that rain that goes into the soil as opposed to runs off. And then secondly, it's reducing the amount of evaporation that occurs with the mulch. So it can be helpful in a drought to retain a little bit more water. The catch is just When does the drought occur, and how much cover crop growth did you have, and did the cover crop actually use more of the water through the plant itself before you killed the cover crop and made the soil drier before planting occurred, right? So an early drought, you have to be careful that the cover crop doesn't use too much water before you get your cash crop planted. A later drought, the cover crop can be very helpful because it's a mulch on the the surface and you get more of the water into the soil in the first place. We try to educate folks about the fact that the benefits of cover crops in general don't occur the first year or two unless you have really sloping soil or unless you have uh, fairly degraded soil. If you have decent soil to begin with, you may not see a lot of benefits the first couple of years, but with time you'll see those. 
What do people plant as cover crops? We have cereals or grasses. We have legumes, which fix nitrogen. And then we have brassicas like daikon, radish, and a turnip and things like that. The most common would be in the, the group of grasses. So, for example, cereal rye or annual rye grass or winter wheat, but not planting it to harvest the, the wheat, just using it as a cover. Those are the most common in part because... They can be planted later than anything else in the fall and still give you sufficient growth. They grow earlier in the spring for the ones that, that overwinter. The legumes get going slower. You have to get them planted earlier in the fall, and they don't really grow a whole lot in the spring until May, until it warms up. And most of the time our farmers are wanting to plant their corn already by late April or early May, so they don't get as much benefit out of the the legumes um, given our typical system. And then the brassicas, I'm talking about like a daikon radish, which has a, a looks like a big carrot and has a long taproot or a, a turnip. Those, those are interesting because they have a long taproot, so they can help make pores or channels that are deep in the soil that allow for uh, even more rapid water movement into the soil. But I would say they're, they're not as common. The, the seed is more expensive. Again, you have to get them planted earlier in the fall than, than you would for something like a, a cereal rye. Fantastic. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for the interview. Best wishes for the year. Okay. Thank you very much. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. I am Juliana Daly, and today's In Nature segment is about the endangered bobolink. Perched on a grass stem or displaying in flight over a field, breeding male bobolinks are striking. No other North American bird has a white back and black underparts. Added to this are the male's rich straw-colored patch on the head and his bubbling virtuosic song. Though they are still fairly common in grasslands, their numbers are declining. They are small songbirds with large, somewhat flat heads, short necks, and short tails. They are related to blackbirds or orioles. Bobolink means rice-eating and refers to this bird's appetite for rice and other grain. They breed in open areas across the northern United States. They prefer large fields with a mixture of grasses and broad-leafed plants like legumes and dandelions. Although bobolinks are numerous and adaptable, their U.S. population has been declining since 1966. They were put on the 2014 State of the Birds watch list which lists bird species that are at risk of becoming threatened or endangered without conservation action. 
The main reason for the bobolink's decline is land use change, especially the loss of meadows and hay fields. You've been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area, the Mysterious Hills Winter Hike Series will continue with a hike at Brown County State Park on Saturday, February 9th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to carpool to the trailhead where you will hike along Horse Trail A for around a mile and a half, then switch onto Trail 17 for another half mile to the quarry. The trails are quite rugged and sloppy. Wear sturdy boots and bring a hiking stick. A winter exploration hike will take place at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, February 13th from 10 a.m. to noon. This hiking experience will take you through the Stillwater East North Fork Wildlife Area. The hike will involve off-trail hiking with no set path. Be prepared for rugged terrain and the lack of former formal toilet facilities. Indigo Birdie Nature Tours is offering trips to Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area near Linton, Indiana from Saturday, February 16th through Monday, February 18th. You will have the opportunity to view cranes, owls, eagles, waterfowl, and more. For more information, go to indigobirding.com or email david at indigobirding.com. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Rebecca Mueller, and Wes Martin. Tending the Garden was written and produced by the late Cheryl Coverdale. It was edited by Chris Lightning and Jan Walker. Script editors were Andrew Brown and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Norm Holy produced our feature and Jan Walker edited it. This week's In Nature was written by Juliana Daly and Jan Walker edited the segment. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is West Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news 
that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.